Shalom. Thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. Come spend the Sabbath with us. Beth Emanuel meets every Saturday at 828 3rd Street in beautiful Hudson, Wisconsin, only 25 minutes from downtown St. Paul. For more information, click on the Services tab at BethEmmanuel.org. A foolish peasant taking shelter from the rain once stumbled into a cave in which he discovered a hidden treasure of gold and silver coins. He felt ecstatic over the discovery until, on closer examination, he realized that the coins were not minted in his country or under the government of his land. Instead, they bore strange inscriptions in a foreign language he did not understand and images he did not recognize. He correctly deduced that the coins must have been brought from far away and had been hidden in that cave for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years. What a pity, he said as he left the cave. I could have been rich. Now listen to the meaning of the parable. The peasant is the modern person. The cave is the synagogue. The gold and silver coins are the prayers, the Torah reading, and the worship of the synagogue. The foolish peasant does not recognize their value because he cannot read the inscriptions. He assumes that, because the inscriptions are foreign and ancient, they are of no value to him. Likewise, the modern person does not understand what happens in the synagogue and cannot understand the Hebrew. Because the prayers, the Torah reading, and the worship are foreign and ancient, he assumes they are of no value to him. But the truth is that the gold is real gold and the silver is real silver. The synagogue is the house of God. Every true and authentic synagogue is a daughter of the holy temple in Jerusalem, and it draws from the spiritual potential of that place where God said, This is the place of the soles of my feet. My name and my presence will dwell here forever. By the way, that's the best argument for why the synagogue should be conducted according to the pattern and the design, according to its traditional liturgy, because it's a pattern and a design inherited from the holy temple, which in turn was shown to Moses on the mountain when God said, Let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. The traditional synagogue liturgy derives from that original pattern of the worship of the God of Israel instituted at Mount Sinai. The foolish peasant in the story doesn't understand the value of what he has found in the cave. If he did, he would not leave without filling his pockets. Moreover, he surely would return there again and again until he had carried away all the wealth contained in that place. When I think of the spiritual potential that exists here in this synagogue we call House of Emmanuel, I feel abashed unworthy, and overawed. The name Beth Emanuel means house of God with us. What if we really believed that were true? What if we, all of us together, really believed that it was true that the God of Israel, the maker of heaven and earth, inhabits this place with us? And this really is a holy place, 
sanctified by prayer and the reading of the Torah, conducted under the authority of the one who sits at the right hand of glory, an actual portal from this world to the heavenly sanctuary, a house of God and a tent of meeting in which we meet with the Almighty, enter his rest, bask in his presence, invoke his blessing, receive his instruction, place before him the petitions of our hearts, and receive from him spiritual food, drink, and direction. Compare our experience here with the experience of Israel in the wilderness under the cloud of glory, eating from the bread of the angels, drinking from the spiritual rock with the holy tent, the tabernacle of God in their midst. The prophet Micah says, Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Moses usually gets most of the credit and most of the attention. After all, the Lord spoke with him mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings and riddles. Moses is rightly the center of attention. But his older siblings, Aaron and Miriam, were no slackers. As they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? All three of them were important to the endeavor and led Israel 40 years in the wilderness, as Micah says. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Tradition says that the three great sustaining miracles of the wilderness wanderings occurred on the merit of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Which miracle depended upon Moses? The miracle of the manna which descended from heaven and appeared on the ground and sustained the children of Israel forty years in the wilderness. The manna ceased a few weeks after the death of Moses, on the first day of the Omer, after the children of Israel entered the land and ate of the first ripe barley. Which miracle depended upon Aaron? The miracle of the clouds of glory, which sheltered the children of Israel in the wilderness like a sukkah spread out over them as a shade from the sun by day and a pillar of fire by night. The cloud of glory led them through those trackless lands of the shadow of death and signified the dwelling presence of God in their midst, resting upon the tabernacle in the wilderness when they made camp. In this Torah portion, Aaron dies. And the Midrash says, the cloud of glory also vanished. Which miracle depended upon Miriam? The rock from which the water flowed, providing the whole nation with life in dry and waterless places. After the death of Miriam, which also occurs in this Torah portion, the people complained that there is no water. It's the first time we've heard that complaint in 40 years. The sages took it to indicate a cause and effect relationship. When Miriam died, the water ceased flowing, and Moses was told to speak to the rock to open it again. Instead, he struck it with the staff. The New Testament says, All were immersed into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was the Messiah. 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4 They all ate the same spiritual food, that is the manna, which descended daily, corresponding to the Torah itself and the revelation of the word of God, as Yeshua explained. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. 
not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Yeshua himself and all of his teaching constitute this daily heavenly bread. As he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He spreads for us a table in the wilderness. All were immersed into Moses in the cloud. The cloud into which they were immersed in the cloud and in the sea symbolizes the presence of God, the revelation of his glory, when heaven itself manifests on earth. In the Gospels, the cloud surely appeared at the immersion of the Master when the voice spoke from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Today I have begotten you. And again on the high mountain, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Likewise, I think when the voice from heaven thundered in John 12, the Master said, Sanctify your name. And the voice from the secret thunder said, I have sanctified it and I will sanctify it again. The clouds of glory received the Messiah in the hour of his ascension, and upon the clouds of glory he will return, as it says, one like a son of man coming with the clouds. All drank the same spiritual drink. The rock that followed them and the water it lavished upon them symbolizes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the teaching of the Master. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. I will give to one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. When the kingdom comes... The Messiah will restore the miracles of the wilderness. He will reveal the hidden manna and provide bread from heaven. As it says, may there be an abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountains. He will restore the cloud of glory when the dwelling presence of God returns to the holy temple. As it says, over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies, a cloud by day, even smoke and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day, and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. Isaiah 4, 5, and 6. He will bring water out from the rock, as it says, In that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. Zechariah 14, 8. All of these things belong to us as the heritage of our faith in the Messiah, the King of Israel, on whom the spirit of Moses rests, the spirit of Aaron rests, the spirit of Miriam rests, that is, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These assets are here, present, in the sacred space of the Messianic Synagogue. If we are to benefit from these spiritual gifts, however, it takes a corporate effort. In our Torah portion, after the unfortunate incident when Moses strikes the rock, we see a completely different approach to the well of Miriam. The people keep the water flowing, even in Miriam's absence, through a corporate effort. It says, From there they continued unto Be'er, 
That is the well where the Lord said to Moses, Assemble the people, that I may give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing to it. The well which the leaders sank, which the nobles of the people dug, with the scepter and with their staffs. While discoursing on this passage, the Zohar says, People go to synagogue to influence the powers above, but few know how to do it. God is near to all who know how to call upon him and to set powers in motion in the proper manner. But if they do not know how to call upon him, he is not near. The Zohar goes on to prescribe specific formulas for prayer. The larger point is that we get out of the synagogue what we put into the synagogue. If we come to the synagogue with the corporate expression of faith and sincere expectation of receiving the miracle of spiritual food and drink like the manna and Miriam's well, and the sincere anticipation of God's presence like the clouds of glory, then we can be compared to the people who join their voices in song in corporate effort to raise the water in the wilderness. Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. I want to persuade you to take seriously the enormous privilege God has granted you with access to this holy place. Of course, you can pray alone at home, and you should pray alone. Our master says that when we pray, we should go into a private place and pray to our Father who is in secret and he will hear us. He criticizes those who pray standing in synagogues to be seen by men. But that's not a criticism of praying in synagogues, which Yeshua himself did religiously according to his custom from Sabbath to Sabbath and probably every day between as well. Not to be seen by men, but to be seen by God. A person can pray alone, but the spiritual potency of prayer increases when we join our prayers together, as Yeshua says in regard to a Beit Din, that is a legal Torah court, where two or three are gathered and agree, I am there also. These words are about legal procedure, not prayer meetings, but prayer is also a legal procedure, and the word for prayer, hit palel, has a legal connotation of invoking authority. Let's look at it this way, like ascending levels of spiritual potential on the axis. Private prayer alone brings us into the presence of God. It's level one. Prayer combined with two or three who are sincerely agreeing in prayer brings us to level two. Prayer with a minion present, that's level three. At the same time, there's another gradation on the vertex. Prayer in any private place brings us into the presence of God, which is level one. Prayer in a holy place, namely a synagogue, which derives a measure of the holiness of the temple, brings us into level two. Prayer in a holy place, preferably a synagogue, which derives a measure of the holiness of the temple, brings us into level two. Prayer in a holy place and on a holy day brings us to level three. What then is the potential of prayer in a holy place on a holy day when a minion is present to offer up the prayers of the priestly nation in the name and authority of our master? Surely it opens the potential to receive from the living water that flows out from Eden and the seventh heaven. But it requires faith. It doesn't happen just mechanically. 
It doesn't happen just because you're here with other people and there happens to be 10 Jewish guys and it happens to be the Sabbath. That's just the outer shell. In the days of the Holy Temple, the prophets often rebuked the nation for bringing their sacrifices without also bringing their hearts, for honoring God with their lips while their hearts remained far from him, and for treating the holy things of the temple with disdain. The Lord said, I am sick of your burnt offerings, your holy days, and your prayers. In the prophecies of Malachi, he rebuked the priesthood. How long will you trample my courts? You sniff at the sacrifices on my altar and yawn over my services and treat my holy place with apathy and contempt, complaining about the tedium. If only there was someone among you who would just shut the doors of the temple and close the place down. These rebukes were not meant to turn the people away from worshiping God in the temple, but to remind them of what privilege they possessed with God dwelling in their midst. The prophets wanted them to quit taking his presence and his holy place for granted. These prophetic rebukes show us that even the holiness of the temple could become a place of apathy, disinterest, or hypocrisy, a mere shell with nothing living in it, a mere shell with no spiritual life within it. How much more so was that the case in the days of the priesthood of Eli and his sons who served in the tabernacle at Shiloh? Eli's sons abused their position in the priesthood, took advantage of the women who came to worship, and forced the worshipers to surrender their sacrificial portions to feed their own appetites. Was the holy house of God ever in such a sorry state? Yet, Hannah came to that same sanctuary with faith. She prayed in confidence that God dwells in his house and hears prayer, and her prayers were answered. Likewise, her son Samuel heard the voice of God speaking to him in that holy place, audibly calling his name. These stories show you that you have to look to the Holy One, blessed be he, and to believe in him and not be distracted by the worthless drama and unprofitable politics of social interactions, conflicts, intrigues, and the shortcomings of others, even the shortcomings of your leaders. I am telling you all of this because... It's taken 20 years for us to arrive at the point where we have built a Messianic Jewish synagogue that prays the designated prayers of the synagogue with a kosher Torah scroll and Torah service and a Jewish minion. For a long time, we were building it like Noah laboring on the ark. And there's still work to do, but it's now operational. It's like that scene in Return of the Jedi where the rebels think the new Death Star isn't finished, but the Emperor says to Luke Skywalker, Now witness the firepower of this fully armed and operational battle station. But it requires faith. You have to believe. You have to believe that what happens here is real. If you attend without faith, without believing that God exists and he hears you, Your prayers bounce off the walls and there's not merit in the mitzvah of attending at all. The apostles say, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So it takes a little bit of faith. How much? Not an enormous amount. Just a mustard seed of faith. Which is to say, the tiniest amount. Just a speck. 
If you have just a tiny speck of faith, no larger than the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. So it takes a little pinch of faith. That's the magic ingredient. You can see this principle at work in other ventures where people of faith join together in faith, believing what happens. God acts on their behalf. Miracles happen for Roman Catholics and Russian Orthodox who gather in churches to pray the Mass. Miracles happen for Evangelicals and Pentecostals and Charismatics who gather in churches to sing worship songs and speak in tongues. Miracles happen for holy monks in monasteries and for sisters sworn to chastity in the convents because they're ardent because of their ardent pure faith. I'm talking about real miracles, not deceptions or false signs and wonders, but the real work of God. Why? Because they believe, because they have faith, because they have a real sense of the sacred and the divine. They honor their religion and their sanctities. They believe what they are doing is real, and they believe that God is really there inhabiting their worship. God honors their faith. How much more so, then, should that be the case when we bring our simple faith under the name of our Master into this holy sanctuary, a synagogue, the daughter of the holy temple? How much more so when we combine our faith with the truth of the Torah and the prayers of Israel that have been uttered by the priestly nation since the days of the apostles and the holy temple? But it takes a little bit of faith. When our master visited the synagogue in Nazareth, he was not able to do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. They simply did not believe he was anything special. Without faith, it's all just a shell. So it takes a little bit of faith and a little bit of kavana, a little bit of intention. If you come to the synagogue expecting to receive nothing, you will receive what you expect. The Talmud says that a synagogue should always have windows. It says that you should pray in a house with windows. It's a rule derived from Daniel who prayed at an open window facing Jerusalem. Why windows? Because the windows open to the light of heaven. And just as light passes in through a window and also out through a window, we want God's presence and his blessings from heaven to enter the synagogue like light from heaven. We also want our prayers and worship and adoration to pass through the same windows and ascend to reach heaven. In Jewish law, I don't know where, there is a custom that says every synagogue should also have one window that does not open to the outside. Why? Because there are always people in a synagogue who do not lift their prayers to heaven, who are not spiritually participating with the community of faith. The window that does not open to heaven is meant for their prayers. By no cunning of our own, it so happens that the Beth Emanuel Sanctuary has one window which does not open to heaven, but rather opens to a wall. It's there for your prayers to bounce off of if you come to this place without faith and the intentions of a sincere heart seeking God. God does answer the prayers offered in this place in the name and authority of his Son, And he does honor the blessings invoked here. You might not see it, but I see it. I see God at work answering our prayers. 
I've used the analogy before, but the petitions we offer after the Torah service are like the payload dropped by a B-52 bomber on a bombing run. The whole Shachrit service and the Torah reading are just the thrust to get that enormous plane into the air and into position over the target so that it can open the bomb doors and drop the goods. The petitions and blessings we offer up during and after the Torah service, including those prayers for the sick and prayers for the whole community, are the bombs. How many healings, how many blessings, how many portions of success, sustenance, and parnasa, how many goodnesses and kindnesses from heaven have been visited upon this congregation and those who attend the Shabbat services and those who give wine for Kiddush and Havdalah, not to mention other synagogues and communities of faith, other messianic congregations, and for the state of Israel, for the IDF, for the American government, for our president, and for our nation. In the Holy Temple, the priesthood offered 70 bulls on behalf of the nations every Sukkot. The Talmud says that if the nations understood what they stood to lose with the destruction of the temple, rather than pulling it down, they would have surrounded it with armies to protect it. Likewise, if the nations understood the enormous spiritual potential they could access in the synagogue, there would be no room here. There would be a line of people out the door, all of them hoping to get a seat. If the members of the Beth Emanuel community understood what they stand to lose when they choose not to attend, when they choose to skip the services or come late and leave early, you would not be able to drag them away from this holy place. Now that I've said all that, however, it's important to add a caveat. The synagogue is not for everyone, and it's no easy task. Simply attending and participating in a synagogue service involves some heavy lifting. It's really an enormous amount of work. And starting a messianic synagogue is not recommended. It's taken us nearly 20 years. In the absence of a Jewish community, we have learned, it's not even appropriate for Gentile disciples to do so. A church, which is a daughter of the synagogue, just as a synagogue is the daughter of the temple, serves the needs of most people far better. The gold and silver coins found in the church are minted locally, inscribed in the common language and stamped with a modern image, but they are still gold and silver. The synagogue experience is not for everyone. It's not designed to be. Therefore, the rule we have learned from starting a Messianic synagogue is this. Don't try this at home. That caveat, however, should emphasize for you all the more how precious, how amazing, how rare, how awesome the privilege to enter this holy sanctuary and the presence of God. How rare is an Orthodox Messianic Jewish synagogue conducting legitimate synagogue services, praying the prayers of the priestly nation under the authority of the name of our Master Yeshua, who sits at the right hand of glory? Even if such a place did exist, how unlikely would it be that I, as a stranger to the nation, would have the privilege of participating in its services and benefiting from its beneficence? Such a place does exist. In the words of Dorothy, as she clicks together the ruby-red slippers, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. I'm trying to open your eyes to see and behold the spiritual light and glory and revelation which is yours in this house of Emmanuel. 
David prays, O Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your Torah. I wish I could open your eyes like Elisha did for his servant on the walls of Dothan, as it says, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire. In this place, by the merit of our master, there is a well that flows with living water. In this place, by the merit of our master, Yeshua, there is an abundance of manna, that you might live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And in this place, there is a cloud of glory, a chariot of fire, which is the presence of God, a shelter by day, and a light in the darkness. But you need to believe. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected becomes a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. For those who believe, however, the same stone becomes a well of living water springing up to a river of life that flows from the Messiah himself. And learn from there And find rest for your soul